Hello, welcome to Mind and Movement, the podcast, where we discuss mindful movement through dance and through life. On this week's episode of the podcast, I'm excited and also a little anxious to share this solo episode that I recorded maybe like 20 times now. But I really wanted to talk about the concepts of essentialism, how society has defined our categories and labels for us and forced us in it, how to reclaim our personal power and separate it from social power, and my own personal dance and self-identity journey through navigating what it means to be an Asian American. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you like this one. Super nervous about it. Let me know what you think after you listen. Okay. Hello, this is Justine Wang here with my own solo episode that I've tried to record maybe like 10 times now, but I just feel really nervous every single time I record it. So there are concepts I want to talk about today that I feel like it's important for people to know. So hopefully I get them out within this next hour. I'm going to follow the structure of my own podcast so far, which is talking about my background. And then I'm going to go into some concepts. And then at the end, I'm going to apply these concepts to my own life. Just so that we have a better, I guess, specific scenario that we can rely on or connect the concepts to. Because sometimes these concepts are kind of hard to understand. Okay, so I'm going to break my background down into three parts, my cultural background, my psychology background, and my dance background. So I was born here in the United States, and then four months later, my mom took me back to China because she was a single mom here, and China was where my dad was at. So I was raised by my dad along with a bunch of my nannies um, until the age of seven, and then my dad and I came back to the United States. So my first, uh, my first language is Mandarin, not English, but my English is a lot better than my Mandarin now because, you know, I pretty much only speak English <laughs> during this time. So that's fun. Okay. And when I moved here, I moved to Alhambra 626 area, which is full of mostly uh, East Asian people with a couple of Mexicans mixed in. So rem- remember that part because that's going to be really important as it will show what kind of sheltered place, sheltered bubble that I grew up in. And this environment really shaped a lot of my ideas and perceptions of the world. So anyways, I lived in that area until college, and then I came to UCSD, so that's pretty much it. Okay, moving on to psychology and why I like psychology, there was always this like curiosity within me about the world, and then also um, I grew up you know, in an Asian American community slash Asian community that had no understanding of mental health. And I was definitely depressed as a kid growing up because I had to move around so much. I didn't really have a connection with my mom until like I was seven. 
a lot of other things going on there that I don't want to go into. But basically, I was a very depressed kid growing up. And I don't think I got out of my depression until like I was 21. Fun. Okay. <laughs> but um, a lot of the times people would ask me, like, Justine, like, you're overly dramatic. Or like, Justine, why do you feel the way you feel? You know, and they're not really asking because they want to know. They're kind of asking asking to like gaslight me or like uh, invalidate my feelings. But I always thought that like it was going to be a challenge of mine to like explain to them why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling. So that's kind of why I took up psychology (laughs) because it helped me put my feelings into words. And because, you know, mental health is really stigmatized in the Asian community, I wasn't allowed to go see a therapist. So I decided to be my own therapist. (laughs) It worked out well for the most part like I'm fine right now for the most part I definitely do want to like see a therapist in the future but right now it's like yeah anyways also just wanted to say that I am in no way saying that anybody should get into psychology because they're looking to be their own therapist um yeah that's maybe not a great idea don't do what I did Anyways, I always had this interest and then I went to college with a BS in psychology and then I also minored in business. Yeah, so that's mainly my psychology background. I've done a bunch of lab work, research work. I would say that like being a scientist is something that I identify with a lot. The things that interest me are basically creativity, building a diverse, inclusive business organization and then right now currently how to minimize groupthink so social psychology cognitive psychology and industrial organizational psychology are all like the fields that I'm really into I'm also kind of into neuroscience because it's cool to know that like these things don't just exist in my mind there's also like a brain image that shows that these things exist so that's really cool So long story short, I just love psychology and like almost every aspect of it. So yeah, I'm a huge nerd and that's okay because I love it. Okay, so I've always been interested into dancing and I don't remember what I was watching, but I've I've always wanted to do hip hop, you know, and then I've, I've like told my mother this and she signed me up for ballet because she was like ballet is the foundation of everything which is wrong that's not it but she signed me up for ballet and she was like you have to do ballet first and so I did ballet um, and Chinese cultural dancing for from like third grade to like middle school and then I started I kind of started taking class but like not really and then I was on my high school team but my high school dance team was like its own thing because so I was also like really okay this is a tangent but I was really envious of all male because all male got to do hip-hop and dance team had to do ballet and jazz and contemporary and then sometimes we did hip-hop sets so like all we did was learn one choreography and then we would practice it for like two months which was not what I wanted to do 
but it came closer than like just doing ballet. So I stayed on that team for a long time until I graduated, actually. Okay. So then I came to UCSD and then joined a collegiate team here and I started going and taking class um, at FX and Culture Shock. And that's when I realized that like I really do love um, choreography. And the thing that really made me love dancing is making Grown Ups in 2017. And then now I just, yeah, I love dancing. And for the longest time, I love psychology and I love dancing. And for the longest time, I thought that those two things had to be separate. That dancers didn't understand psychology and psychologists didn't understand dancers. And so I felt like I could never bring those two worlds together. And it was only until last year in 2020 when I saw... Sora come out with ABBD, which is um, business and dance together. And I was like, no way. Like, <laughs> no way. There's no way you can do that. Like, you, you, you mix two, like, industries together or, you know, categories together. Like, what? Unheard of. And I was like, oh, my God, I can do that with psychology, right? Like, that's what I, that's what I do because whenever I was in dance spaces, I would think about psychology concepts and like how those concepts are at play at work. And then whenever I was in psychology classes, I would think about like dance and dance teams and like the things that I see in dancing. So that always happened in my mind. I always thought it was not okay to do or like nobody cared about it until I saw otherwise from Sora and also from Offset Med um, because I think they had like a biokinesiology thing with dancers and I loved it. Um, I love seeing that. So yeah, that was literally the first time that I thought that like, oh, you can really combine these two things and that's that's who I am as a person. So that's wild. So that's also kind of how this podcast came to be. It's a good representation of who I am as a person. I think it captures a big part of my essence, which is psychology and dancing. <laughs> um, it's not everything, but you know, it's something. And I just feel like the space is really needed right now because sometimes I feel like we spend a lot of time on social media texting each other and Maybe a lot is said without really saying them or meaning them or really interpreting interpreting them. So I was hoping to have a space to have conversations with people and being able to put these conversations out there because the world needs it. The world needs vulnerability. And also, I love being able to ask people these questions because I'm actually a really awkward person. And so, and so this is an excuse for me to get to know other people better because I don't know how to do it in like a natural setting or whatever natural is. So that's the background behind this podcast and that's a little bit about a background of me. Today, I wanted to break down a little bit about mindfulness and then especially the concept of essentialism and how that's been exploited by the system to redefine our humanity to what the system wants it to be. 
But I will start with mindfulness because I think it's important to define what mindfulness is because in my intro, I say something like we discuss mindful movement through life or whatever, right? But what does mindfulness really mean? So mindfulness means a bunch of things. (laughs) And I think when people think of mindfulness, they usually think about like meditating And meditating is really just one way of practicing mindfulness. It's not all that mindfulness is. So to read, um, I guess, a couple of definitions that I found on Google, mindfulness means maintaining a moment-by-moment awareness of our thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations, and surrounding environment. Mindfulness also involves acceptance, meaning that we pay attention to our thoughts and feelings without judging them. When we practice mindfulness, our thoughts tune into what we are sensing in the present moment rather than rehashing the past or imagining the future. So what does that mean? (laughs) Because I think that was a lot of words too. So mindfulness means that we are present in this moment, number one, and that's actually really hard to do. And sometimes I think people mistake being present in the moment with like having no thoughts But that's not true. It means being aware of your thoughts in the present moment. Uh, Number two, it it also means that we don't over-identify with any of our thoughts, experiences, emotions, so on and so forth. That doesn't mean to deny your thoughts and feelings of emotions. It just means not to over-identify them. So before, I used to really identify myself with anxiety and like Uh, to like speaking like car analogies uh, my anxiety was taking the driver's wheel instead of letting myself take the driver's wheel so that's practicing mindfulness it's realizing that yes we have thoughts yes we have emotions and memories and experiences and we have a separate essence of ourselves outside of those things so to put this in another type of analogy I would say that like uh, most people have their bathroom mirror and to not be mindful to overly identify with everything is to let that one mirror define your whole existence and only ever look into that one mirror and thinking that this is what I see in this mirror and that is all that I can be a better step is to go out into the world in different lighting Um, in different environments and look at yourself through all of those different mirrors and realizing that some of those mirrors like if you've ever been into like uh, one of those fun mirror houses where like sometimes you see yourself as really tall and then sometimes you see yourself as like really skinny or fat you know you get it like those mirrors the world presents those mirrors to us and so choosing which mirrors we want to see ourselves in or Choosing what details we want to focus on in each individual mirror, that is a step of mindfulness. And then realizing that you exist even when you're not looking into a mirror is is belonging to yourself, is having self-worth. Yes. When you are not looking into any mirrors, you exist. And that is mindfulness and that is having your own essence of yourself. So being able to pull yourself back from all of these mirrors and realizing that you belong to you is, I would argue, a form of mindfulness. So 
the part of mindfulness that I want to focus on today is realizing that there is an essence of yourself outside of your emotions, your thoughts, your experiences, your behavior, so on and so forth. And because you exist, this essence of you has value. So what is this whole tie-in with essence and essences? This thought of thinking is called essentialism. Essentialism defined by Google is each group, person, or thing have their own unique essences and we define them as such. And the way we define them is that some details are more essential than others. So to put this into practice, let's think of the difference between a cat and a skunk, okay? So if I take a cat and I paint the cat black, draw two stripes on this cat, you would still say that that is a cat and that a skunk is still a skunk, right? So there is something about the cat that makes it a cat, even though it's not its physical qualities. There's a specific essence to a cat and there's a specific essence to a skunk, even if the cat started making whatever noise skunks make, or even if the, the cat started, you know, releasing really smelly, like, scents, would you call it a skunk then? So this is the concept of essentialism. It's that cats are cats and skunks are skunks, right? And so each individual animal has their own unique essence. Okay, and then to elaborate a little bit more on this analogy, you would say that the physical characteristics of a cat does not change the essence of a cat and that there are some characteristics that are more essential than others. So if a cat started releasing gas when uh, it got startled or scared, the same way that skunks do, you might argue that it's a skunk. Or if a skunk started meowing and then suddenly we can domesticate skunks to be house pets, maybe then you'll say that a skunk is a cat. So just wanted to throw that out there because this is related to how we define human beings and collective groups of people. Yes. So we end up having essentialism or essences for individual things. But what has happened in society is that we have given essential characteristics to specific groups or collectives of people. And that is what is detrimental. And that is what causes or one of the causes of racism, sexism, ableism is that we decided to give these categories power by giving them specific essences that are important to those categories. And then society forces these categories onto you yourself as an individual so that it tries to erase your individual essence from society by providing their definitions of what makes these groups or categories essential because we have to fit into the essence of these groups okay so thinking about like a woman what society defines as essential for a woman is their ability to be married how pretty they are, being able to do house chores, being 
kind and gentle with everybody. So that is how society defines the essence of a woman is, for the most part, our ability to be married off to a man. That is the essence that society has defined for women. And we're realizing more and more that these categorical essences that are being forced upon us are not it. <laughs> that we exist outside of these categories and that like our definitions of women need to change. Okay, so to further put this in perspective, what makes a human being an actual human being? What is the essence of humanity? So... Uh, capitalism defines humanity or a human being as somebody who makes money and somebody who has a job, somebody who has, you know, five degrees because they can make more money. So capitalism has given us the definition of humanity as workers. Racism defines humanity through skin color and for asian americans the essential traits of an asian american is to be hardworking, smart quiet and obeying the rules these are the ways that society has employed categorical definitions to define what is essential for the human experience my goal today is to bring awareness to how this happens so that we can start to redefine these categories and redefine what humanity means and i think to give one last analogy or question or philosophical question um, because i think this is really representative of like humanity as a whole or essentialism is this was in one division but also it's like a long-term uh, philosophical question it's the ship of theseus so the ship of Theseus is, you know, beaten up, battered up, its planks are rotting, and it's placed into a museum. And this museum replaces each plank one by one. And then at some point, this ship is completely replaced. Is it the same ship? And in WandaVision, <laughs> they argue that it's not the same ship because you're missing the rotting of the planks, which is where the memories and the experiences lived in. So when you replace each individual plank, you are, you are taking away the memories, the experiences, the identity, the essence of the ship. And so one would argue that it is the experiences and the memories that live within the rotting and the breakage that makes that ship that ship and that's the essence of it and so humanity human beings should be defined by one our own definitions of our identities two our experiences our emotions our thoughts our behaviors all of it combined so being able to define yourself and your own essence is an example of taking power back for yourself and not so much leaving it to society. And that is how you gain personal power. So 
this concept of personal power versus social power is something that Amy Cuddy wrote about in her book Presence, which is personal power is something that you can take for yourself and it's limitless. Social power is limited. And just because you have social power doesn't mean you have personal power. So the idea is kind of like this, where um, if I'm given a job or if I am dancing with a group of amazing people, I can have imposter syndrome, which is I don't feel like I belong there. And so that's an example of me having social power, but me not having personal power. And the way that we get personal power back is being able to reclaim labels for ourselves and being able to reclaim our own identity for ourselves and defining that by by what we think we are. And it's also realizing that we even exist outside of our own definitions of who we are as people. So I think racism, capitalism, sexism as a whole affects everybody and uh, the people in power, quote, in power, aren't actually in power of themselves. They have given away so much power to society and has let society define them as human beings. And that is a really sad thing. But this is how racism and capitalism and sexism are upheld because these people are don't know who they are outside of these essences that society has imposed on them. They have no idea who they are and they're scared to leave it. They're scared of the exploration and they're scared of losing their sense of identity because their identity comes from the social categories that were given to them. So the people in power really are not benefiting from the system in a mental, uh, spiritual kind of sense. They might be benefiting physically and with wealth and money and privilege, um, but they are lacking a sense of personal power. And I just say this because I used to be there and I see it within some of the people in my circle. And it's just sad because these people are beating themselves up with shame and pain and fear. And they don't know how to navigate those things. And it makes me really sad. So for the most part, these people in power, which tend to be white, heterosexual, cisgendered men, feel a lot of fear, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. And they're constantly in a fight or flight survival mode uh, where they don't know what to do. And you have to remember that like they grew up with the same rhetoric that men aren't allowed to have feelings. So they because they've never been in touch with their feelings, they've never learned to be accountable for their own feelings and for their actions. And when their emotions are triggered, they want to blame the trigger, not themselves. And that is what leads to violence against Asian Americans, Black people, um, BIPOC, LGBTQIA, all of these uh, marginalized communities. It's because they don't know how to manage their own emotions 
so they take it out on other other people. They don't know how to have control for themselves. They don't know how to have power for themselves, so they exert power on other people, assuming that they will feel powerful after they do it, but it's never enough. I just want to make a quick disclaimer here that this is not to defend anybody for their actions. It's more so to provide a better understanding of the system and the factors around us that contribute to people upholding the system. Because if we truly want to change it, we have to understand we have to understand what is broken about it and this is one of the things that's broken about it. It's that these people do not have emotional intelligence and sadly enact their anger and shame upon others, which should not be the case, but it's currently happening. And this is why these people will defend the system with their whole lives because their identities are so attached to their system. I'm going to tie this with fitting in and true belonging. So to quote Brene Brown, who I love and definitely check out her podcasts. She has two, Unlocking Us and Dare to Lead. And she also has a lot of books. Anyways, her quote says, fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be to be accepted. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. That's basically how I would define it, but basically, having personal power is knowing that you belong to yourself and you're the only person that can really define you. Giving away that power is to fit in. And honestly, this is something that I'm still working on too because I I still want to fit in sometimes, for sure. Yes, and we fit in to the categories that society has defined for us. And so I think one of the ways to retake, reclaim this power and realize that we belong to us, to ourselves, is by redefining our identities in the ways that we want to and not letting society have that power. And maybe that doesn't sound like the greatest, the grandest thing, but it is a step that we can take in order to fight systemic racism is to say that you no longer have that power over me. And once we do that, we can start building systems for other people that do that also recognize people's senses of self. And that's a hard, long process, but I do hope that we're able to make, we're at least able to take a couple steps forward. Okay, so that was all really heavy and a really large topic and concept to break down. Um, But I wanted to go from a macro level to a smaller level to an even smaller level. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about how this concept, this certain definition of essentialism where we define certain things by only specific essences how that shows up within the dance community and how that shows up with how that has shown up within my own life and how that's affected 
my perception of the world as well as my perception of myself. But we're going to start with the dance community first. Something that I want to clarify as well, because again, this is just seen trying to record this on another day. So yeah, now you know. I like took 10 takes to do this, but it's fine because learning process. I think that the concept of essentialism where there is this undefinable essence is not a inherently bad thing. I think the way that society has used essentialism to place essential categories and definitions to people, now that is the part that is bad about essentialism. And categories, human thinking in it of itself is not an inherently good or bad thing. And there are certain ways that essentialism and uh, simplification does help us. If I'm trying to find a chair to sit on, I'm not really going to spend time thinking about whether or not the thing that I'm sitting on is a chair. But unfortunately, people are so much more complex than that. And so no amount of single definition that we give to people is going to be enough and the way that we have given certain qualities more importance than other qualities within society currently has not been representative of what humanity is how can we expect humans to be perfect to always be working to never take a break How can we expect human beings to be that all the time? How can we just, I guess the better word is reductionist, that society has reduced us to our skin color, to what job we have, to what education we have, to how many kids we have. And to change that, we have to embrace our own definitions. Okay, I said that already. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about essences of dance community, what that was prior quarantine and how that's slowly starting to be redefined and reshaped and this is from pure observation from my perspective so it is definitely limited in some way the dance community what was essential before covid before quarantine before 2020 was having a large social media following, being center for prestigious teams so that you could get invited to teach, winning a competition so that your team name is out there. It was all about prestige. It was all about clout. And there were people that, you know, were doing the good work, but I think it wasn't loud, especially not on social media. And when it comes to covid something that quarantine did was make us reevaluate these definitions so a large part of dancing too was that it was in person and a lot of people had to find different ways to connect with their community without being in person and events had to reconsider their positions because before events were just competitions and Teams had to reevaluate the essence of their team. A lot of teams define themselves as competitive teams. 
that they would only go to competitions, that they wouldn't do exhibition shows. Everything was about making each other look clean, look like each other, and winning. And that was the essence of what it meant to be on a team. And I think a lot of team dynamics, team policies, zero tolerance policies, those things for the most part in the community were not there because the focus and the most important thing was gaining clout so that eventually we would all have enough money to survive off of dancing. And also another additional disclaimer that this isn't to shame anyone for chasing clout or wanting likes or wanting money because we are all just a part of the system and we need money to survive. So yeah, totally understandable. Anyways, I do think that there are certain teachers, mentors, studios, events that are trying to redefine this dance community to honor the black roots of which this culture has come from as much as possible. And we're also reevaluating what it means to be your own unique individual dancer. Before, being a dancer just meant that you could probably do somebody else's choreo really well and a compliment that we all give to each other which we still do and it's okay to some extent, is, hey, you look like you dance like so-and-so. And sometimes we even want to do that. We want to look like certain dancers, but to refocus our energy, we need to start defining for ourselves and finding for ourselves what it means to be our own dancer. And all of this, reevaluating ourselves and then rebuilding our community takes time. It takes effort because you have to be super intentional with the way that you're redefining your community and you have to make sure that your impact aligns with that intention. And that's not going to be the case all the time. And it takes trial and error and it sucks that it takes trial and error. But that is one essential part of being a human being is to make mistakes. Something that I read in a book called Where Good Ideas Come From, it was talking about human error. And it was saying that it's not enough just to say that humans make errors. Human beings came to be because there were errors, because there were variations. And that's just to justify my thinking of human beings being flawed and that is okay because that is what makes us us and the sooner we embrace that the more we redefine ourselves away from that perfectionist capitalist definition of what a human being is so that's just like a short quick little tidbit on the dance community and now I'm going to talk about my own life and how this concept of reductionist capitalist thinking, which has tried to impose an essence on me, worked. I truly believed everything that society told me. I did not know that I had my own essence or identity. And I fell into the system. And this isn't to excuse my own 
actions either because it's not in fact i would argue that like i'm taking accountability for my actions because i understand the amount of harm i have done when i was in pain i understand the amount of harm i've done to other people i understand how i've upheld the system uh, how i've perpetuated the system how i will still have to participate in the system because the system is literally everywhere and everything that we do comes with flaws and consequences unfortunately but i do these things with intention and hopefully eventually there's some amount of positive impact anyways so backtrack i'm not sharing this to excuse myself i am sharing this for accountability and to share vulnerability so that we can all come to terms with the fact that we've made a lot of mistakes and that's okay it's okay because there's nothing else to do we can't go back in time and stop ourselves from making those choices we can only make better choices moving forward okay so this is really hard for me to talk about because one i don't really know the structure of how to talk about this so i guess i'll start chronologically of what i can remember from my life there's a point to this i promise this is just me sharing how my sense of identity came to be so we'll start from the beginning again i was raised in china and Something that was always told to me was that I'm pretty because I had whitish skin and that I look like I came from a biracial family, a white and Asian family. This was what I heard, by the way, in China. So American racism existed there. And I was told that I was pretty. I was told that I was cute. I was told that I was really smart. From the get-go, I have always been told that I'm super smart and super talented. And I know it doesn't sound like a bad thing to be complimented in that way, but it was never taught to me that hard work pays off. It was never really taught to me that like you could be more than what you're born with. It was kind of always reinforced that like whatever you were born with, that is all that you'll ever be. And you can only be good at certain specific things, getting good grades, playing piano. And you're not allowed to play soccer because, you know, you're a girl. So I was told that I was really smart and that I learned really quickly. And because people kept telling me that, if something took a long time for me to learn I would lose patience immediately because I wasn't getting it and I'm like well that's not a part of who I am that's not my identity that's not what people were telling me so I'm just not gonna do it (laughs) and that's so detrimental like looking back at it now that's so detrimental so then I moved to America and I'm still living in a predominantly Chinese bubble in the community that I grew up in the people around me my peers were mostly chinese cantonese a little bit of korean a little bit japanese and then like maybe one third mexicans and i was not close to the mexicans at all because at the time i was super racist and even though my friends and my friend's parents were mostly all asian something that 
I never noticed until thinking back about it recently it was that my schools were ran by predominantly white people like most of my teachers were white and my principal was white and my counselor was white this was my elementary school my middle school because my middle school was a part of my elementary school and my high school and that's pretty ridiculous and also these schools didn't teach me to think critically one of my history teachers told me that the Civil War wasn't about slavery, it was about freedom. <laughs> and then my other biology teacher told me that she didn't believe in evolution, but it was within the curriculum to teach. So that just goes to show how horrible my education was growing up. Fun times. But anyways, so the kind of things that I've always heard growing up in that environment is that Asians have to go get a degree and they better go get a degree, especially if you're an East Asian, you better go get a degree as a teacher, a lawyer, or a doctor. There is no other path for you. Don't you even dare think about doing anything else. And you have to be musically inclined. So you're going to play piano. And I played piano for seven years or nine years I don't even remember and I hated it because all it was was memorization and I think within the community the Asian the Asian community there really isn't an emphasis on discovering your identity it was about how much you could obey so it was always how well can you follow the rules how well can you test like everybody else Follow this specific path because it worked for other people. And you know, I do believe that like our parents came from a time where that path was very clear and very linear of like, this is exactly how you're going to get to stable income. Because stable income is the only thing that matters in a capitalist society. Yes. Okay. So that's kind of like my little history background. And then going into school... When I first came here, I didn't know English and I picked up English super quickly. And the reason why I wanted to learn English so quickly was because I didn't want to be an outsider. I didn't want to be made fun of for, quote, being a fob, which was a word that was used to group Chinese people who came here and spoke with an accent. And I've used it on other people too, which is super not okay, but I've used it for so long because I was like, well, I'm more American than you are, so I'm going to call you a fob, which is not okay. And the reason why I felt that sense was, one, I think kids are very perceptive of what makes somebody fit in or what makes somebody doesn't. And number two... In first grade, when I was still in China and I went to an international school, um, it wasn't really international because international just meant that like those kids were Taiwanese. And I was, you know, I'm Chinese with an American citizenship. And that was it. Okay, like I spoke the same language as these people and I look like them and they still bullied me because they realized that I was American and like 
at the time within China too, there was this fear that like America, you know, is this like number one world power or something. And so there was like this fear of Americans and I got bullied just for having an American citizenship. And that doesn't, honestly speaking, it doesn't mean anything. But the fact that kids can perceive how much that status could potentially benefit me, they decided to bully me. And so because I was bullied and because my life, I've moved around and was taken care of by nannies, I had a very anxious sense of attachment to the world, which is a story for another day. But my motivation was always to do whatever it took to fit in. And this is why I was very motivated to learn English because I did not want to stand out. So anyways, the only thing that I I felt like I was being valued for was being smart. And I felt like my friends were only friends with me because they wanted to cheat off my tests or they wanted answers. I think this this started happening within like fourth and fifth grade in my third, when I was in the third grader, I didn't really feel that way, but I definitely felt that way in fifth grade. That if I wasn't achieving something, if I wasn't asking the right question, if I wasn't turning in papers and getting back 90%, that I am worthless. There is nothing else to me besides being smart. And that was the only thing that I was valued for. And then it gets extra complicated because Asians are supposed to be smart. And because I could only identify myself through these labels, being Asian with that definition of being smart became essential to me. My own self-identity would be challenged if people challenged the idea that Asians are smart. So at some point, it wasn't that Justine is smart. It was that Justine is smart because she's Asian. Or Justine is Asian, so therefore she is smart. The trait becomes less about me and more about my race, which doesn't even make sense, but this is how we generalized people as a society. And... I felt responsible for representing Asians in the way that society was describing them as. And so if I wasn't being smart, I was the most shameful person ever. I shouldn't be allowed to exist because I'm not fulfilling my role. And what's super funny about that is that's not even being smart, by the way. That's not what being smart should be because all I did was just memorize things. And like memorizing things... I mean, yes, it's one form of intelligence, but it's not the only intelligence. But that was the only thing that I was that I was praised for. And then it got to a point, too, where just being smart was no longer enough for my parents' attention or my friends' attention. It was like they would just hit me up if they wanted help with their homework. They didn't want to hit me up to hang out with me. And... It was something that they hated me for. (laughs) Like, oh, look at Justine being the teacher's pet. Or like, look at Justine being really nerdy. You're such a nerd. And so it was like, it was such a double-edged sword where it was like, the only thing that I was being 
valued for was being smart and at the same time I was super hated for it and that was just such a weird space to navigate um, because I never knew when I should be smart or when I should act smart versus when I shouldn't and so growing up I was not allowed to have my identity it was always about other people and what roles I can play so that they can validate my existence. And I didn't know that I could exist outside of other people and outside of this model minority myth and outside of this smart label that people put on me. And it's not something that I unlearned until last year. Last year, when quarantine hit, it was a lot of unlearning. And It was the first time that I allowed myself to truly be, just be me, to just dance and not care about what people think. I thought that was a lie. Like, I thought that didn't happen. I thought everybody was lying when they were like, yeah, I don't really care what people think when I'm dancing. I just dance. I didn't really believe it. I might have known the concept, but I... I still wasn't sure and in quarantine I really started to believe more and more that I could just dance for me and that is still wild to this day to think about that like like even with this podcast I mean yeah I hope that like people are gonna listen to it but at the same time honestly nobody could be listening to this right now But it's helping me process my emotions and my memories and experiences. And this is a state of being that I'm currently in. And I'm like super grateful to be able to do this. Anyways, this is all derailing a lot. But I guess my point here is like back then I was the harmed And then I perpetuated that same harm onto other people because I was hurting and I wanted other people to hurt with me because I didn't know how to relate to other people otherwise. And even when that stopped becoming a conscious desire, it still came out in other ways. And I have said some really mean, ugly things that have hurt other people. I have lost friendships because I was so racist and so sexist. And I was so full of hate. But I truly believe that like people are not born to hate. People learn how to hate. And I I don't really know where that comes from, but I feel it. Children are born with such wonder for the world and such a great power and understanding of themselves. And then we forget it as we age because society wears us down. But we knew it. At some point in our lives, we we knew it. And there's this quote that's like, it's not really finding yourself. It's more like rediscovering yourself. And I find that quote to resonate a lot with me. Anyways, this part of the podcast was all over the place. And that's okay, because you know what? I'm just being today. Hopefully, this all made sense. And I guess one last thing before I close this out is that I am not really trying to convince anybody to think in the same way that I am. That is not my mission. I hope to be able to spark ideas 
and spark conversations and reflections within yourself. That's it. (laughs) I hope that by listening to this, you are able to reflect on your own experiences and choose whether or not you want to apply all of these things to your own life. My goal is for people to be more intentional about the way they move through life. And that does not mean agreeing with me. It means listening to me, being really open about it, and reflecting on it, and coming to your own definitions of it. And again, I know it doesn't seem like the greatest, grandest step to take, but I think that if you are moving through this system with intention, that is one of the best ways to challenge the system. Because there's, in the position that we are in right now, where if you're like me, you're probably not in a place to have a lot of influence or you're not a politician. (laughs) You're not somebody who can just simply influence policies. And you might be asking yourself like, what what can I do to contribute to dismantling these systems? It's by doing this. And I know it's like people say it, but it honestly means so much for you to understand and redefine your own intentions as we move through this life so that when you do have the opportunities to be in a state of social power, you can enact your own intentions and create a better long-lasting hopefully positive impact on the world by being more intentional and that's all that matters truly and also if your values are obviously you know (laughs) if your values are about humanity about curiosity about vulnerability about caring for other people then just make sure that you're able to have that impact and in the moment you are just preparing for that opportunity so to sum everything up society has given us these reductionist definitions of what it means to be asian to be a woman to be me and i choose to challenge society back by redefining who i am so that my definitions can be contributed to the overall definition of what it means to be a woman and to be an Asian. And I hope that by me sharing this story, I know it's not all-encompassing of all Asian women stories, but it is a piece. And the more that we all share our personal stories, the more we can change societal definitions of what it means to be these categories and labels last lastly i guess i'll just ask myself random questions and i'll answer them as fast as i can okay a random joyful moment something that i will always think about is my performance with grown-ups at ultimate brawl because that was the first time that i've actually really had fun performing on stage And it was amazing because I was not anxious about messing up. I was just there to do my best. And that was great. 
something that I had to unlearn last year. So much. Shaming people does not change them. And then just randomly, lastly, a podcast that has been having a lasting impact on me as an artist and as a person is Brene Brown's podcast, of course, with Dr. Pippa Grange. And in this book that she writes, Dr. Pippa Grange, I hope I'm saying her name right. Um, Sorry if I mispronounced it, but she writes about how she had a therapy session with a trumpet player. And she asks this trumpet player, where does the music come from? And the trumpet player says, the music is created through the trumpet and me. And I guess that the music exists and all I have to do is remain open for it to come to me and that's wild because it's it's the same thing with dance the dance already exists you just have to open yourself up to receiving it that's wild um anyways dance is dance is a part of the human experience i am grateful okay And then very lastly, so for this week's podcast, I wanted to raise awareness to SD for Justice, which is just San Diegans for Justice. And it is just an organization that is working towards accountability and transparency in law enforcement. Right now, they have demands for the San Diegan Police Department to demilitarize and enact more community-based organizations for interventions. So I fully believe that grassroots organizations um, and organizations that are a part of your local community do a lot to enact change, and it's also change that you can see, which is great. And more than anything right now, we need to work towards abolishing the police system anyways got through that episode super glad and i really hope that everything made sense and i know that i'll probably revisit this episode and think to myself that there were moments to improve on but this is the most authentic vulnerable me that i can present right now and that's okay i just want to be able to allow myself to be me a little bit more and this is a step in that journey and i'm super grateful for that let me know if you listen to the episode and what you think you can find me on instagram at justine.wang underscore yeah thank you so much for listening and next week is the last episode of the season and i'm super excited to share it